Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, April 6th here in New York City. I hope everyone is safe and healthy and doing well during this quarantine period. One thing that I've noticed that's made me feel a little better is that even though the weeks are going by slowly, the days are going by pretty fast, staying busy with school and work and doing these podcasts. So the days go by quick, even if the weeks feel like sometimes they never end. Today on the podcast, I have an interview with the head men's basketball coach at Emmanuel College, Danny Lawson. Uh, coach Lawson has been at Emmanuel for two seasons now, has led them to 18 and 19 wins in his first two years, and is doing a lot of really great things there, turning that program around. And I think it's only a matter of time before they're back in the NCAA tournament. So uh, I had a lot of fun talking to him. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, in recommendation corner, I, I have two recommendations this week. First one was an article on The Athletic. Uh, where uh, Duncan Robinson, friend of the podcast, friend of D3 Hoops, uh, talked about how there was a protest that wasn't, that when they when his Michigan team made the national championship game, there was talk amongst all the teams of protest the NCAA by sitting out Friday's mandatory open media practice. And I think that that article is really interesting. I think reading from that, it's only a matter of time before some team does do something in protest of the NCAA uh, so check that out on The Athletic. I really recommend it. And one thing I've been watching is I've had a lot of fun re-watching Parks and Recreation on Netflix. It's a great show. It's about six people who just basically come together in a small local government office and do good things. So it's a fun, nice, very relaxing rewatch that takes a lot of the stress away. So enough of me talking. I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back, here's my interview from earlier today with Coach Danny Lawson from Emanuel College. Joining me today on the Double Double is the head men's basketball coach at Emanuel College, Danny Lawson, a Massachusetts native. He starred as a player for Bentley University, a Division II powerhouse, helping lead the team to three appearances in the NCAA tournament, including a run to the 2005 Sweet 16 and the 2007 Elite Eight. After graduation, Coach Lawson began his coaching career with the Boston Celtics as a video coordinator and helped them win the 2008 NBA championship. After a year in the NBA, Coach Lawson rejoined the college ranks with stops at LeMoyne College, LIU Brooklyn, Duquesne University, and Endicott before becoming the head coach at Emanuel in the summer of 2018. Coach Lawson has made an immediate impact on the Emanuel program as they have as they have back-to-back seasons of 18 and 19 victories and was named the D3Hoops.com Northeast Region Coach of the Year in 2019. I'm thrilled that he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Good, David. I'm excited to be here. Happy that you, you thought of our program and was interested in having me on. So looking forward to the conversation. For sure. So, so Coach, growing up in Lexington, Massachusetts, how did you fall in love with the game of basketball? Well, for me, uh, I have a little bit of a unique background. Um, pretty early on, I would say, my father has been a longtime head coach at Bethlehem University, I uh, just finished like his 30, 30th season, I believe, and, and was an assistant there prior to that. So at 35 years old, I, I don't really remember any parts of my life where I wasn't around basketball. So I think that, you know, the early exposure 
um, and experience that I had around his teams at Bentley uh, in the Northeast 10 Conference and just New England small college basketball in general was kind of my initial uh, exposure to the game and what really developed my love and passion for the sport. You know, first as a player and then later, um, you know, having it become something that I loved enough to try to pursue for my profession. So, as you mentioned, your your dad, Jay, Jay Lawson, is a legendary coach at the Division II level at Bentley. He's been there for over 30 years. Was there any additional pressure growing up to play basketball? I don't think there was additional pressure, but uh, it, it, it would have been tough for me to not um, probably fall in love with it. I think just because I saw so many positive experiences through the sport whether it was the relationships that he had with his players or the success and failures that they dealt with in their program. And, you know, it just really developed a competitive drive in me personally that I wanted to try to become the best player I could um, as I grew up. So you're, so you're playing high school basketball. What was your recruiting process like and how did you end up choosing to play for your dad at Bentley? Well, it it was an interesting recruiting process. I was, I was really underdeveloped physically in high school. I, I probably still am at 35. You know, I was probably as a senior in high school about 6'2", maybe 130 pounds. So I was real skinny and really, really thin. And obviously growing up around the Bentley program, that was always my dream to be able to somehow figure out a way to be able to compete at the scholarship level um, in Division Two for Bentley. And so as I got older as a senior, uh, I played on some really, really good Lexington High teams with uh, a lot of college players as my teammates and really only had Division three recruitment and a lot of really good Division three programs. Coach Riley, when he was at Bates, was actually one of them. I'm not sure if he would even remember that. <laughs> um, schools like Bates and WPI and a lot of other really good basketball programs had shown interest and, you know, I would politely tell them that, you know, my goal at this point, uh, like a lot of the players that we all recruit now was, was to try to play at Bentley for my dad. And so now we deal with it on the other end of it as a coach, but that's a, that's a story for another time. <laughs> and so getting to the end of my senior year, the plan in order to help me have the best opportunity to, to join the Bentley program was to do a post-grad year and go to prep school. And as my dad and I went throughout New England to visit all these schools, there are obviously a lot of great post-grad programs. It's, it's kind of the hotbed of, of prep school basketball in America. And none of them just really felt right to me. And it, and it wasn't a knock on any of them locationally or, or school-wise. It was more, you know, I, all I could think about was trying to play at Bentley. And so in the end, the plan that we came up with was for me to go to Bentley as a freshman and completely sit out and redshirt, you know, obviously for a lot of development reasons, physically, emotionally, mentally, uh, and academically. So instead of taking the, the kind of more common road that a lot of players take to do a postgraduate year, get older, get stronger, improve academically i did that against 22 and 23 year old men in the bentley program practicing every day working out every day uh, as well as going to school there so that ended up being extremely helpful to me if i didn't do that year you know i i I just wasn't ready for the scholarship level of basketball athletically 
or, you know, uh, physique-wise. So Doug McDermott wrote an article in the Players' Tribune a few years ago about playing for his father, Greg, at Creighton. And in that article, he details some challenges and quirks about playing for his dad, such as sometimes not going immediately to the locker room where he would hear his teammates talking about his dad, delaying picking up laundry in Greg's office that Doug sent home for a couple days when he was mad at mad at him and sometimes even going into his office and asking his dad for money when he needed gas or to go to a movie what was the overall experience like for you to play for your dad in college and what types of challenges did that sometimes present yeah so i I get asked this a lot and it's a great question Uh, i was really fortunate to play with some great teammates and i i was more of a role player in college as a wing shooter and, you know, got to play with a lot of talented players in my five years there and, and were able to win 101 games, you know, in my four years where I was eligible to play. So it made it a lot easier of a dynamic to manage because our team had success. I think mm-hmm. if, if we hadn't been as successful as a group, uh, you know, that father-son dynamic becomes a lot more scrutinized and criticized. Um, but, yeah, it's absolutely tough. I know my mom and my sister were concerned about it initially, but, um, you know, and I was more, I tried to be as perceptive and understanding as possible for what my teammates were going through, you know, because it was really more of a unique situation to handle for them than it was for my dad and I, Yeah, you know, I, I knew that my dad and I would manage it and make it work because of our, you know, commitment level and, and, and care for each other. And I really try to take the perspective more of how how can I make this the most comfortable and, and easiest to manage for my teammates. So while at Bentley, as you mentioned, as while winning over 100 games in your four years of eligibility on the court, you guys had some incredible winning streaks of 32 and 22 games, respectively. What is the experience like to be on a winning streak of that many games in a row where you're, you know, in most games getting the other teams is best shot every time? Uh, it was really surreal. You know, you appreciate it more as an adult looking back, especially, you know, in the coaching profession where we all know how difficult it is, you know, to even win one or, or, or two games in a row. And it really was a credit more to, you know, obviously, number one, we had we had a high talent level on our roster. You know, none of those things would have been possible without that. You know, we had really good maturity and leadership that really helped our core values and discipline to really sustain our focus and concentration on the on the next game at hand. And, you know, on top of that, to have those type of win streaks, you got to be really fortunate. You got to win a couple games and steal a couple that you probably shouldn't win. You have to have, you know, really good luck in terms of health. Uh, you got to have a lot of things go your way. And I, I think at the time, you know, I, I don't remember feeling pressure that we, you know, we're going to lose the streak. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that at all. I, I thought more, thought my dad and the, and the coaching staff did a really good job just day to day with us, keeping us focused on the next opponent we were playing and, you know, really understanding. And I think that's where the, the maturity factor came in because we knew you know, we're playing at the Division Two level where every every school has scholarship players. You can lose to anybody. Right, you know, right. The level of parity and competition is 
is at a really, really high level. And, you know, so I think that really helped us stay focused and, and we were able to sustain those, those streaks. So while you're on these winning streaks and winning tons and tons of games, you're also going to graduate in 2007. Was there a point in your college career that you decided that coaching basketball was, was something that you were looking to go into as a profession? Yeah, I think I always wanted to work in basketball. I think I probably realized that in, in like middle middle school or early high school that you know this is something that I want to try to work around and be around for you know my whole life. You know, after I'm done as a player. So I, I'll tell you a funny story. As as you know, and and probably most people listening, when you're when you're a college player, you know, even at the small college level, and you're a senior, you know, your coach gets these these letters from agencies and overseas connections that try to encourage you to a lot of times go to pay to try out for mm. European showcases. Uh, it happens every senior in the country gets these type of letters. And, you know, I remember myself and the other four seniors, you know, going to pick up the mail in my dad's office and, you know, him giving it to each guy individually. And I think I might've been the last one. And he, he handed me the letters and, and I remember saying something, he said something to the effect of, hey, I just want to let you know, uh, you can't play overseas. So I don't know, I don't know what these letters mean, but you know, <laughs> in terms of extending your career, you know, this is the reality of it. We still, we still laugh about it today, uh, you know, t- you know, in this day and age, because when I was working in Division One, we took a team over to Ireland uh-huh. uh, for a foreign tour. And I remember calling them from Ireland and said, hey, you know, you you lied to me. You said I couldn't play overseas. <laughs> Some of these guys were playing against. I think I still might be able to play overseas. But, you know, he was always very direct and honest with me about the level of a player I was. And I think that, you know, that honesty and reality really helped me, you know, kind of overachieve for what I was athletic and physically um, to be able to help Division Two teams. And uh, so I never had any grand... Uh, aspirations to play beyond college after gotcha. that conversation. So you graduate in, in the spring of 2007 and you become a video coordinator with the Boston Celtics that summer. What's the interview process like with the Celtics and just generally when you're trying to break into coaching? Well, it, I graduated, as you said, I think I graduated in May. So the, the first couple of months I just spent working camps uh, like I always had in the area and, and just trying to you know keep my eyes and ears open for any any college you know assistant jobs and I remember going through the process with a couple schools over the summer and I I just got really really lucky and fortunate they the Celtics hired new assistants that summer I'm not sure if you remember this but they they were coming off the season which was my senior year of college where they they set the record for the most losses in a row yep so they made a lot of changes over the summer. Uh, a lot of coaching staff turnover, uh, working for Coach Rivers and as well as their roster. So one of the new assistant coaches, Mike Longobardi, who was hired that summer, was in charge of hiring that position. Mm-hmm. And he he knew my dad from previously coaching at the Division Two level. He happened to be the first person he called just for names. Uh huh. That's great. To, of people that might be interested in the position. And it just lucked out that it happened to be my senior year when I was graduating. Uh-huh. He happened to be the person that, that he called 
And, you know, so that kind of got me the opportunity to interview with the coaching staff and, and with Doc Rivers. And, you know, I still had to do a good job throughout mm-hmm. the process and earn it. But um, that's kind of how it, it came to fruition. So a very, very fortunate situation for me, especially my first job, uh, you know, at 22, 23 years old. So so as you mentioned, just, just for the listeners and to remind people kind of of, of the timeline, the Celtics traded for Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett that summer leading into the 2007-2008 season. And as, and as you said, the Celtics had finished last in the Eastern Conference the previous year. We're now primed for a, a run to the championship. How excited were you to be with this team and with, that had such high hopes and expectations? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was every, you know, cliche and adjective you can use to describe it. It was probably all of those things. It was awesome. It was an unbelievable experience. It was overwhelming in a positive way. You know, it was probably one of the best experiences you could possibly have as a person graduating college and then trying to go into the workforce in any profession. Uh, just because of the environment, you know, as you said, it really changed the expectations and kind of the culture around the organization, uh, you know, especially for such a storied team that that had a lot of past success so it was uh it was surreal that's for sure so people nowadays hear the the term video coordinator a lot as it's kind of where a lot of guys got their start you, you always hear with eric spolstra got to start in in the video room for the miami heat just what are some of the responsibilities of a video coordinator in the nba uh well yeah obviously as described in the title a, a lot of your initial responsibility is, is regarding helping the assistant coaches uh, break down films. So it could be your own film. It could be self-scouting. It could be opponent scouting. It could be breaking down film for the coaches so that they can watch it individually with players. Just kind of being all hands on deck in anything that the coaching staff or players need. If they need you to rebound at 11 o'clock at night and you're available you got to be available for it. you got to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if Tom Thibodeau needs an edit turned around for Ray Allen in two hours, you, you got to figure out a way to, you know, to make that occur. And, you know, Brian Adams was the head video coordinator at the time, who's, who's now the uh, head G League coach for the Agua Caliente Clippers of the Los Angeles Clippers. He was great to work with and, you know, kind of showed me the ropes a little bit on the expectations of it. But um, in terms of responsibility, I mean, you're, it's a low man on the totem pole job. So your job is to make everybody else's life easier. Um, if you got to go pick someone's car up and fill it with gas, you got to, you know, just say yes. Uh-huh. You got to be able to say yes to everything, and you got to be able to adjust on the fly and, and kind of right. solve problems quickly. Right. So as someone who is starting his coaching career and you're filled with these lifelong coaches and, and guys like Doc Rivers and Tom Thibodeau, what type of advice did did they give you as you were starting out your your coaching career? Yeah, I don't know if it was advice as much. It was just the example that they set. I mean, I think they're they were Tom Thibodeau, Coach Thibodeau, and, and Doc Rivers were were such a good match together. You know, as well as the other coaches, because they all just complemented each other really well. You know, they were extremely driven and detail oriented. Um, you know, I think we probably worked like 300 days straight that year, you know, to help to help the team and help the players and help the coaches. So, 
you know, Tom Thibodeau was a guy that, you know, we'd all try to beat him to the office, even even when, you know, the team returned late at two or three in the morning from from charter flights all over the country, and nobody could ever beat him in. You know, <laughs> try to get there at four thirty, four forty five five o'clock in the morning and, and no one ever beat him in and so we just stopped trying because uh, you know i was still convinced that he was you know he was like superhuman at this point like he didn't need to sleep and so the example that he set in terms of the, the thoroughness the work ethic the preparation um your communication of that information to the players and the rest of the coaches and just how they managed the roster of personalities, how they manage guys' egos, how they manage expectations. It was, I mean, it was like getting a doctorate in the highest level of basketball. So, Coach, the 2008 playoff run you guys went on had some incredible series and matchups. I want to talk about the matchup with LeBron and his Cavs team in in the second round. What were some things you guys tried to do when preparing for the matchup against LeBron? You know that's a, that's a good question. I, I don't. You know, obviously at that time he was he was a lot younger, and uh, you know he was kind of leading a group of teammates at the time who you know he had to do a lot. He had yeah. to score a lot. He had to create a lot of shots. You know, he had to score in transition. He had to get fouled. He had to, you know, really guard Paul Pierce well. And you know the, the key to the, the team's defense that year. You know, and that's probably it's probably one of the best defensive teams in, in recent NBA history. With KG and, and Kedrick Perkins, Rondo, you know, even Ray Allen and Pierce and a lot of these other guys, they were so intelligent and smart as as team defenders. It, it was really, really big on, you know, funneling him to certain areas as a team, um, you know, pick and roll coverage as a team you know, how, how the help side was positioned, how we were going to crowd him, you know, and really force him to play in, in limited space. You know, all things that we all do at any level of basketball, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it was more just for me at that time, you know, I was just helping out. So I was really taking it all in and really trying to learn different schemes and terminology and, and try to just grow my knowledge of, right, of right. you know, how to help players and teams at that level. So game seven of that series, Coach, is one of my favorite NBA games ever. LeBron goes for 45 points on the road in the Boston Garden, but Paul Pierce outdueled him with 41 of his own as you guys go on to win the game and the series. What was it like to be in the building for such an iconic game? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, I think the... The thing that a lot of people forget is, you know, we, we had gone to Game 7 in the first round against the yep. Atlanta Hawks and then went to Game 7 again against the Cavs in the second round. And, you know, we were the number one seed. And it's like having, you know, two opportunities to, to have your season end. You know, I remember for us as, as younger guys, you know, it was uh, it was crazy. And, you know, the biggest part of that game that I remember, obviously – you think of LeBron and Pierce's kind of back and forth as a, as a big storyline of the game. But the biggest play of that game was a loose ball rebound that Paul Pierce came up with um, late in the game by diving on the floor. I still say that's one of the biggest plays in that championship run for that team because mm-hmm. without that without that hustle play of diving on the floor and coming up with the jump ball, 
you know, you, you don't get to the next round and play the Pistons. You don't get right. to the finals to play the Lakers. It, it was just such a winning play, and that'll always resonate with me for the rest of my life on how important those type of plays are to winning music. So the 2008 finals pitted you guys up against the Lakers in another Boston versus L.A. classic. The Lakers were obviously led by the late, great Kobe Bryant. What were some of the things about his game that really stuck out to you when when prepping? Uh, I think it was just his skill level, his his competitive drive, uh, his IQ, his understanding, and it, as well as his his motor. I mean, his his stamina, in addition to his skill level, is is legendary. I mean, I, I don't think there's anyone else, probably in the history of the NBA, that just didn't get tired like right. him. I mean, his the the level of conditioning that he drove himself to was just unbelievable even at the end of a long season like that going all the way into june in the nba finals and you know just the skill package that he developed over the course of his career as he lost athleticism from when he was younger um you know just all the different ways he could score in terms of mid-range posting up he really really developed his three-point shooting I mean, he was, you know, those type of guys, whether it's LeBron or Kobe, there's no answer to stop them. Right. Yeah, you know, they're they're unstoppable players. You have to do as, as good of a job as a five-man unit as you possibly can to make it difficult. And you got to have some good fortune along the way. But, I mean, those are, you know, two of the all-time, probably five or ten best players in, in basketball history. So the Celtics go on to win that series in six games. Was there a moment during Game Six where it hit you that you were an NBA champion? Yeah, it's it was it's funny that game that game got got away from the Lakers pretty quickly. It, it kind of became a blowout, and I remember, you know, we were we were as video guys, we were back in the locker room, mm-hmm. and you know, as the lead kept getting bigger and bigger, there was so much time left on the clock, and I remember us thinking like, wow, there's almost too much time. Yeah. Because, you know, we had just had to come back a few games earlier um, where, where we were down 20-plus. And I just remember thinking that the clock was going really, really slow. And, you know, <laughs> as, as, the, as the fourth quarter wound down, you know, we were kind of in the tunnel getting ready for, for the game to end. And uh, it, was, it was wild. I mean, it was indescribable. So after one year with the Celtics, you – you leave and you end up as an assistant at Lemoyne College, a Division II school in upstate New York. What went into the decision to to leave the pro level and pursue uh, college coaching? Well, first and foremost, the, the job that I was in in the Celtics, it, it was just a one-year job. Right? Okay. So it was essentially like a, it, I was working for free. It wasn't something where anyone that was in that position even had the option because gotcha. it, was, it was a job that just got turned over every year so. Obviously a great experience and, and one that I'll remember for the rest of my life. And, and having said that, college coaching is really, as we talked about already, it's really more a lot more my backbone and foundation mm-hmm. of, of my basketball experience. And getting to coach at Lemoyne, you know, it, it's a, another scholarship level school in the Northeast 10 in the same league as Bentley, um, you know, a little bit further away out in Syracuse. But it, it just gave me an opportunity to coach at the scholarship level to coach in the Northeast 10 and kind of just carve my own path in terms of getting away from the Bentley program a little little bit. 
uh, learning new things, learning new recruiting areas, learning new styles of play, and really just branching out and, and kind of developing my own niche as a coach. For sure. So that season featured the incredible upset win over Syracuse in early November. What was the whole experience like to go into the Carrier Dome and upset a really good Syracuse team that had a bunch of NBA players on it? Yeah, so we, we played, as you can imagine, we played about as perfect of a game as you could possibly <laughs> play. We, we had some some really good older players, uh, led by Lawrence Perrigan, who was a became a Division II All-American and, and ended up playing overseas for a number of years and, and even had a successful couple of summers in the NBA Summer League. So we had some older players who were talented enough to compete at that level, and then we just had everything go right. Um you know, you have everything working in your advantage in that type of situation. You have, you know, the, the, the lack of pressure on you because you're supposed to lose. You have, you know, maybe not the entire amount of focus necessary from a Syracuse team because they know it's an exhibition. Mm-hmm. And um, just everything went right that we needed it to anytime we needed a shot to go in, every time we needed to get to the free throw line, every time we needed them to miss. And, you know, it's funny, it ended up helping them. They, they went on, I believe, to to become a number one seed in the NCAA yeah. tournament that year. Yep. Yeah, that's that's, that's amazing. That I, I think that was the year that they got upset by Butler when Butler came the one Gordon Hayward shot away from winning I the championship. Was, was, I believe that was 2010. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. So after Lemoyne, you joined the staff at LIU Brooklyn, a school very close to my house. I've been to a bunch of St. Francis, LIU, Brooklyn games. It's dubbed the Battle of Brooklyn, one of my favorite college basketball games that happens every year. And and you joined LIU as the director of basketball operations. For just for the listeners who don't know, what are some of the responsibilities of that title and kind of what does that really mean? So I, I was I was really fortunate again. So the head coach at LIU Brooklyn at that time was was Jim Ferry. Jim Ferry is one of my uh, longtime mentors. He was my dad's first full-time assistant at Bentley for, for six or seven years when I was growing up. And before he rose to be the head coach at Plymouth State, followed by Adelphi, followed by LAU Brooklyn. So I was getting to work for somebody who, you know, I kind of had a lifelong relationship with and, you know, getting hired as, as, as the ops guy at LIU, you know, similar to what we spoke about in regards to a video coordinator role, uh, it's really your job and responsibilities are anything that can help. It's academics, it's film, it's scheduling, it's putting out fires, it's doing things for the head coach, you know, helping the players manage their schedules. And, you know, a lot of it can be non-basketball things, but I think I was fortunate with, with Coach Ferry that, because of my relationship with him, he, he started giving me more and more basketball responsibility as well. And really what it is, is, you know, within NCAA rules at the division one level, you're only allowed three assistant coaches. Gotcha. And the director of operations role was created more to, you know, add support staff in a full-time way that, that helps the program and the players. Gotcha. Gotcha. So your two years at LIU Brooklyn were two of the best years in program history as the team made back-to-back NCAA tournaments. What was it like to make it back to the NCAA tournament, but this time as a coach? Yeah, it was, it was really cool. I mean, we had, we had a group of, of really, really experienced players that just meshed well really together and, and, and as well as great depth. 
And, you know, when you're when you're a school like LIU Brooklyn, the Northeast Conference, and, and you're coming out of a one-bid league, you know, when the, kind of the pinnacle of your season is, is winning that conference tournament. And we were fortunate to beat a really good Robert Morris program both years. And, you know, when you're in those one-bid leagues, a lot of times you're coming out of it, you know, lower seed in the NCAA tournament. So our first season, you know, we were the 15 seed and got assigned to play in Charlotte, North Carolina against UNC. <laughs> and as, as we all know, when you're a, you know, a 14 through 16 seed, you're going to playing one of these schools yeah. and you're playing probably pretty close to their campus. Yep. So uh, we got to play in the, the Charlotte Bobcats arena. The, they were the Bobcats still at the time against a North Carolina team with, you know, Kendall Marshall and John Henson and, you know, really, really talented team that was probably one of the best offensive teams in the country. So um, at that point, you're just trying to, you know, manage, manage that game the best you can and, mm-hmm. and try to limit them in transition and, and keep them off the glass. You know, everything else that all coaches preach when you're, you're kind of playing up the talent level. Right, right. So, so in 2012, you guys earned a 16 seed in the tournament and mash up against Michigan State, who were led at that time by Draymond Green. Obviously, at that point, no 16 seed had ever beaten a, a one seed on the men's side. What was that week of practice like, trying to do something that nobody had ever achieved before? Yeah, so the initial, the initial response was we were, we were disappointed to get a 16 seed. We mm-hmm. felt like... We hadn't been in the year before as a 15 seed, and we, we actually were actually had played North Carolina fairly tough, as tough as you can, I guess, in that situation. And so the initial reaction was, you know, that we we thought we kind of got the raw deal a little bit to get a 16 seed, and you know, we got sent to Columbus and and against Michigan State, which is obviously Columbus is extremely close to yeah. their campus. And, you know, so the, the preparation for that game at that time, besides Draymond, their, their front line was, was enormous. And their, their post-play and interior talent, as well as their rebounding ability, was really, really high. And we did actually did a really good job in the first half of that game. I want to say we were down three or four at the half. And the game was still in the 30s. It was... You know, it was very manageable at that point. And I think we felt going into halftime like, hey, we, you know, we might might be able to keep hanging around here in the second half. And, right, right. Draymond came out and it, it felt like he had a triple double. <laughs> I mean, it was it was one of the most unbelievably dominant performances I've ever seen up yep. close because it wasn't just scoring. It was like he just completely enforced his will on the game and, you know, it got away from us, and I think it ended up at like fifteen or twenty. Yeah, it's hard to believe that guy turned into a second round pick when you rewatch a lot of his clips from from college. But so so after LIU spent the next five years at Duquesne University as the director of basketball operations and as an assistant coach before leaving to become an assistant at Endicott College. What inspired you or led you to leave Division One to come coach at the Division Three level? So I, I went, you know, went to Duquesne with Coach Ferry. We had obviously had done done well at LIU, and he got the opportunity to be a head coach at Duquesne in the Atlantic Ten Conference, which is a significant step up, uh, you know, in the coaching profession. And you know, so we we went to Duquesne, which is it ended up being, 
a, a program that, you know, has kind of had tough times in the last 20 or 30 years. They, they, you know, they haven't been in the NCAA tournament in over 40 seasons. Yeah. And the last nine coaches have been fired. So wow. we were, we were the ninth coaching staff to be fired in a row, um, from Duquesne, uh, in 2017 after our fifth year. And, you know, that's kind of just part of the business at that level and the amount of money that's at stake financially that's, you know, invested by these schools. And that's kind of the decisions that they have to make sometimes. So, you know, the choice, the choice is kind of made for me. It was made for all of us. And, you know, going through that change, you know, which a lot of people experienced that, that coach long enough was, was definitely hard. But, you know, I, I was reminded a lot that I've, I've had a lot of really good fortune in this profession yeah. so far that, you know, it wasn't something that I was giving up on just because, you know, we hit, hit a couple speed bumps. So my decision to go and help out, you know, Endicott, which is coached by Kevin Bedcourt, who's who's been my best friend since we were nine or ten years old playing AAU together. That's awesome. Was really, was really more of a decision on a personal level like Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a head coach I felt like I was ready to have a chance to be a head coach if I was given the opportunity and I I wanted to just have fun coaching I wanted to really try to have an impact on the on the guys and the players that I was helping I wanted to be able to have an experience with one of my best friends and, and I hope that it led to opportunities at the smaller college level yeah I think you know, I had spent the last five years helping Division One programs, and I thought that might give me some experience at the Division Three level, and hopefully make me a better candidate someday for for a Division Three head coaching job. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Endicott was such an established program at that time, having come off you know multiple NCAA appearances. Uh, you know, it just made a lot of sense, and it really just brought me back to the purity of coaching and kind of why we all get into it in the first place because of, you know, the effect that our coaches had on us as players and, you know, wanting to have that type of, of effect in a positive manner on them, you know, uh, once you're able to reciprocate it. So it worked out really well. So, so while you're coaching with, with one of your best childhood friends, this is your first season or at, that was your first season at the division three level. What were some of the differences in coaching, uh, at Division three level compared to the Division one level where you spent so much time? Uh, I, I think the differences were, you know, obviously, as everyone knows, the, the rules are different in regards to your access to them year-round. Yeah. So I think, you know, that, that can be looked at in a positive and negative way. I think it's it's one of the unique parts of Division three because of the student-athlete balance. You know, all of us as coaches would rather have more access um, so that, you know, we can be around them more and, and, and help them more. So I think, you know, the, the rules was the first thing that I noticed the most. And after that, it was just really enjoyable to be around. It was a lot of guys that played basketball for the right reasons. It was the purity of the game. Again, it was just wanting to have a college basketball experience that they could remember for the rest of their life. There was a lot less of you know, kind of the negative aspects of Division One. There was a lot less of politics. There was a lot less of individual egos and agendas. Mm-hmm. And it was really just enjoyable from that, that perspective. So after one year at Endicott, 
you achieve your goal and you become the head coach at Emmanuel College, which is in the city of Boston. Coach, for the listeners who may not know, in like other professions, the interview process can vary greatly. For instance, if you apply to be a teacher, many times they let you come in and teach a mock class. Or if you want to do consulting, there are several rounds of interviews and even solving a mock case of some type. For the listeners who don't know, what is the interview process like when you're trying to get a head coaching position? As I imagine with the strict NCA rules in Division Three, you can't really run a practice in front of the athletic director, right? Sure. And, and I think it, there's a lot of similarities probably at, at different schools, but I also think there's some unique aspects probably to each college that does that you know executes a process like that. Um, the players were very involved with my interview. You know, there was a section that I spent about an hour, an hour and a half with with the upperclassmen in the program, kind of going through my my plan of attack and and how I would run the program and mm. how I would utilize each one of them. And you know, I'd obviously had done a lot of a lot of background research and study on on the individual players as well as the the college in general. So, yeah, as you said, there's no actual on the court um you know process that you're going through but it's a very very thorough process that usually you know our entire days Mm -hmm. um you know they can be five six seven hour interviews and sometimes they even have you come back multiple times so it's the jobs are such a premium because it's such a um it's a profession that so many people want to be a part of right and there's so many qualified candidates, you know, for any any head coaching job at any level, you're you know you're going to see a minimum of two to three hundred applicants. Oh wow! Um, for for any job, whether it's part time, full time, high major division one, I, I mean that that's just how sought after these positions are. So you got to be, you know, obviously you got to do the, your best to prepare yourself and, and put yourself in the best situation to succeed in the interview with your preparation, but you also, you got to represent yourself well and you got to be really fortunate. Right, right. So your first season in 2018, you lead the team to a 15 win improvement over the previous season, finishing the year 18 and eight. What goes into jumpstarting such a drastic turnaround like that in just one season? Yeah, so the, the first aspect of it that when I took over, and I think it was June 11th was my first official day. When I, I kind of spent that whole summer in in relationship development with developing relationships with the returners in the program and kind of figuring out which guys were really invested, which guys wanted to keep playing. You know, because at that point, mm-hmm. that that's your team. You're not you're not going out and and recruiting a, a different roster when school starts in two months. So I saw my best avenues to really develop relationships and trust with these guys because they were going through a change. They were going through having a new coach that didn't recruit them. And, you know, that that's not always the easiest dynamic to deal with. So I, I really spent the first couple months with that as my main focus. And I, I spent time with the guys in the summer when they would come to campus, tried to meet with as many guys face to face in person as possible. Um, if they were, you know, within proximity to campus and pretty soon I realized, you know, you watch the film, you watch the games from the, the previous year. And once they got on campus and started working out, 
it was it was very obvious right away that there were some good players as well as really good character guys in the program. So I I, I don't believe in setting you know goals in terms of specific to results, putting numbers on the amount of wins you have because there's there's so many. Um, there's so many variables that affect that stuff, but I realized right away we had a chance to really compete as I learned the conference, as I learned the level, because, you know, those are things that when you're a new head coach, it, it takes at least a couple of years to learn those things Yeah, that I felt like we could have a lot of fun. I felt like we could really get better. And I felt like there was a lot of buy-in and trust and respect developed in a short amount of time. And I thought that really helped us probably speed up the process a little bit more than we anticipated. So, Coach, you, you, you've you put together a really good staff with assistants just when you look at their bios on the Emanuel website. they have These are guys with a lot of different playing and coaching backgrounds. What types of things are you looking for when you are putting together a staff? Well, it, it is an awesome staff, and I, I think – the benefit that I had was because the, the job is in the area where I grew up and and played in as a high school player and a college player. You know, I, I thought that that helped kind of my network of, of options more. I was able to to have, you know, a guy, Dan Holbrook, who was my high school teammate at Lexington High School for three years, you know, who, who had a great Division three career at UMass Dartmouth and led Division three in rebounding. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell White, who was a, a very accomplished player at Endicott, who had played for Kevin Betancourt there and, and you know, was a high school coach previously, also worked for the Dallas Mavericks in player development for a year, was able to, to have him come on board. And, and Brandon Stevens, who also played at UMass Dartmouth, who was like a 1600 point scorer there, uh, who also graduated from Newton North High School. So all guys that had been to the NCAA tournament as division three players, um, multiple times, all guys that were really accomplished individual players mm-hmm. and all three of them were also from the New England area. Gotcha. So, you know, when you're hiring assistants and a lot of times at, at our level, you know, they're going to have their normal jobs also their full time right. jobs. So I think to be able to have the quality of people, players and coaches that I was able to get, I mean, I, I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop one of these years that, you know, they're going to move on to bigger and better. Right, so that, right. You know, we're just we're just really, really lucky to have the four of us together, you know, going into year three. That's, that's all because I know from my own experience, a lot of times the Division three assistant job is a stepping stone for guys to go on to different programs or eventually, as you did, achieve their goals and dreams of being uh, a head coach at that level. But so... So you take over Emmanuel in the summer of 2018. There was another school in your conference that made a big-time splash hire in St. Joseph's down in Connecticut. They they hire Jim Calhoun, the Hall of Fame coach from UConn. Obviously, as they're in your conference, you play them every year. What was that week of prep like while you were preparing to play Coach Calhoun for the first time? Yeah, it was, it was the same. I mean, I, I think... I knew it was going to mean a little bit more to our players because that year, probably close to half our team was made up of guys that were Connecticut natives. Uh-huh. Um, and some of them were our better players. So I knew that they would be, you know, a tad bit more motivated because of 
growing up in UConn territory. You know, having mm-hmm. their parents be around, you know, three national championships at UConn and probably even things that they remembered uh, being young kids growing up in that area. But, you know, it, it's... I've heard people say this before, but I really believe in this. Like, it was... It was our players and preparing them to play the best that they could against St. Joe's. It had nothing to do with, I don't even think I discussed at that point who their coach was. I knew mm-hmm. they knew, and that wasn't in, in any way disrespectful, but it was more to, to focus on the task at hand and that the game was going to be played in between the lines. And right. It didn't matter if it was a Hall of Fame coach who has won three Division One national championships or, or me in my first season as a head coach. You know, it was whoever was going to play the best in that 40 minutes was going to come out on top. Um, and that was kind of how we approached it. I, I just don't believe in, in and I, I think a lot of coaches would, would probably have similar answers in, in adjusting your preparation because of who the opponent is or who mm-hmm. they're coached by or what their name says on the jersey. I think right. there's always going to be natural human elements, that stuff where you're a little bit more motivated for for certain games, but I think the the strength of, of any coach and, and hopefully I can set a good example for our guys in this way is is really sustaining and, and being consistent in terms of your preparation and treating everybody like they can beat you because they can. So you've, you've mentioned how Coach Ferry is, is a mentor for, for you, but are there other teams in college basketball or even in the NBA that you watch I don't want to say for, for inspiration, but just for ideas on things that you guys can do at a manual as you go about building a really successful program. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I think the obvious answer is, is that I, I try to watch Bentley as much as I can uh, when it doesn't conflict with our games, just because of, not only because our playing styles are similar, but, you know, obviously with my relationship with the program, you know, and the same thing goes for Endicott. Again, the, uh, my background with the program, the, the style of play is very similar. But I also like to watch teams that play differently. I mm-hmm. you know, certainly like to watch the Celtics as much as I can, um, as well as other NBA teams, the Miami Heat. I really enjoy watching. You know, from a high major college perspective, you know, I, I really like Texas Tech. Yep. I've really liked what they've turned into. Uh, I like watching certain elements of how Virginia plays defensively, you know, some of the teams and coaches that I, I was fortunate to coach against in the Atlantic 10, whether it's Bob McKillop at Davidson or Chris Mooney at Richmond um, are definitely people that, that I have a lot of respect for that. I've always tried to learn a lot from as well. I mean, I think as we're all basketball people, you know, whether it's you're recruiting a prep school game and, and you're, or you're watching two really good high school coaches go against each other and, you notice stuff in, in all sorts of right. environments yeah. that you're around the game that can help that you, that you think, Hey, that might, that might translate to how we play. And, you know, the, the level of players might be different and the atmosphere might be different, but you know, the game is still the game. Right. Right. So, so, so for the listeners, just to remind them and everything, the NCAA is moving back the division three, three point line next season to where, like to where the division one line was this year. What are some of your expectations for how the farther three-point line will impact your team and the Division Three game as a whole? I've been following that pretty closely, as, as I'm sure most coaches at our level have. 
you know, I think the last time it changed in 2008, there was kind of a, a one-year downtick in, in percentages, and, and then after a year, the players and coaches adjusted, and it went back up to, to historically what the percentages have been. You know, I, I would anticipate a similar change. You know, I think it's it's obviously a pretty significant change from from a distance standpoint, and it's. I always like to explain it in terms that it, it really affects kind of the average or marginal shooters the most. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys that are the really really high level. You know, thirty seven, thirty eight percent with a high volume of attempts or higher. You know, it's probably not going to affect those guys a ton. Right, right. Guys that shoot over forty percent from the field with multiple makes a game, you know, they're they're gonna adjust pretty quickly to that. The guys that are, you know, thirty-four, thirty-five percent that are maybe tall on the line guys are probably gonna take a little bit longer to adjust to it. But right. you know, I think just like anything else, I think players will adjust quickly, they'll they'll work on shooting it deeper, they'll work on having their preparation be quicker. Um you know, it's obviously going to open up the space on the floor a little bit more in terms of driving lanes, right? And and really put a premium on ball containment defensively. So it should be interesting. I think it'll be good. So, coach, I got five rapid fire questions before we wrap up today. You ready? Ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> so, number one, who is the best player you have ever played against? The best player I've ever played against was Jonte Flowers from Winona State my senior year in the NCAA tournament. He had he had transferred in from Wisconsin. Oh wow. And uh he played like he should have been playing at Wisconsin still in that game. So <laughs> John, he, had, he had nine steals uh, so I'll go with Jonte Flowers. Oh my God. One rule in college basketball that you wish you could change. Uh, I would say at the at the Division three level, I would change the the uh, year round access to be able to work with with the players in the spring and the fall more. Do you do you have a favorite Celtic from that two thousand eight championship team? I have two. Uh, Pierce and Garnett were were the two that I I really had really good relationships with in a short period of time. Uh, you know, I'd grown up as a as a Pierce fan and then, you know, Garnett's passion and personality is, is ad- advertised. So those, those are my two guys. I have a, a Paul Pierce question for, for number four. I'm sure you get this a lot. Game one featured an infamous moment in recent NBA history as Paul Pierce apparently injured his knee and was forced to leave the game in a wheelchair. Yet miraculously he returned and hit two straight threes. Later on, it was rumored that Pierce was having a bathroom emergency. Coach, I know you get this a lot, and I, I just have to ask, what really happened? Yeah, I think we were all concerned that it was a it was a legitimate injury. I I was probably back there in the locker room at the time. I don't I don't remember anything regarding a, a bathroom injury, so <laughs> I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna take the fifth on that one. <laughs> now 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 the last one is a mailbag question from a friend of the podcast. Tell White is one of your assistants, as you mentioned before. Can you just summarize him in one sentence, if that's possible? In one sentence, I'll, I'll say he's going to be a hell of a head coach very soon, and he's equally or better of a person and friend. That's I know that's a, a longer sentence, but no, that's, that's perfect. That's my answer. That's perfect. Well, well, Coach, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. 
as, as we usually do here on the Double Double, we give the coaches the last word. Do you have anything you want to say to the great people of uh, Boston, Massachusetts? Yeah, I think it would be the same that, that we would all say to, to anyone from, from any place in the country is just to stay safe and, and be logical and try to use common sense as much as possible and be aware and, and compassionate towards others and let's all try to help each other get through this tough time. Coach, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thank you and appreciate your preparation and professionalism. And I'm a big fan of the podcast, so best of luck in the future. Thanks, Coach. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. You can find us and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, if you would like to give us a rating, five stars would be much appreciated. You could also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. Uh, we will be back on Friday uh, with another podcast this time. We're going to be changing it up. We're going to be previewing the upcoming NFL draft in a couple of weeks with uh, with a fun guest who's been on before, Jeff uh, Jeff McDaniels, who is now coaching at Boise State. So we're going to talk to him, get, get an update on him, and talk about uh, the NFL draft coming up. So until then, take care and make it a great day.